Well, over the last few weeks, critical race theory has been much in the news and much discussed due primarily to President Trump's September 4th, 2020 memo that was sent to all federal agency heads and department heads calling upon them to eliminate critical race theory-based training from federal government. Uh, Russell Vault, who's the director of the Office of Management and Budget, who actually wrote the memo, memo, summarizes the concerns in these opening lines. It has come to the president's attention that executive branch agencies have spent millions of taxpayer dollars to date training government workers to believe divisive anti-American propaganda. For example, according to press reports, employees across the executive branch have been required to attend trainings where they are told, quote, virtually all white people contribute to racism, or where they are required to say that they, quote, benefit from racism. According to press reports, in some cases, these trainings have further claimed that there is racism embedded in the belief that America is the land of opportunity or the belief that the most qualified person should receive a job. Well, President Trump followed up this memo with an executive order on September the 22nd, which is far more detailed, and it spells out exactly the kind of ideas that he is intent on rooting out of the federal government. Among the several examples of critical race theory agenda items that are cited in that order are the following. One, training materials from Argonne National Library, Laboratories, a federal entity, stated that racism is interwoven into every fabric of America and described colorblindness and meritocracy as actions of bias. Another example. Materials, materials from Sandia National Laboratories, which is a nuclear laboratory, says, uh, has training for non-minority males that states that an emphasis on rationality over emotionality is a characteristic of white males and ask those white males to acknowledge their privilege to one another. So the training is if you promote rationality over emotionality, thinking over feeling, then you're guilty of white privilege and you're engaging in racism. A third example. From the Smithsonian Institution, one of the museums there, a graphic recently claimed that concepts like objective, rational, linear thinking and hard work being the keys to success and the nuclear family and belief in a single God are not values that unite Americans of all races, but instead are aspects and assumptions of whiteness. The museum also stated that facing your whiteness is hard and can result in feelings of guilt, sadness, confusion, defensiveness, or fear. Well, as an American citizen, when I read the memo and read the executive order, I rejoiced. I'm grateful to God that we have a president and an administration that is seeking to address these issues and root out these ideologies from the federal government. And I rejoice for two primary reasons. First, because it does indeed recognize the, the acidic nature 
of these ideologies and the practices associated with critical race theory. And it recognizes that if these ideologies are left unchecked, they will result not only in growing hatred between people of different colors and ethnicities, but it will also result in the overthrow of this nation from within by forces that are at war with the very principles of righteousness on which this nation was founded. And yes, I say principles of righteousness. When the Second Continental Congress voted to separate the 13 American colonies from England, they did so by making a plain declaration of principles which they believed to be in accord with, quote, the laws of nature and nature's God. And as we have been famously reminded recently, they stated, we hold these truths to be self-evident. All men and women are created by the, uh, you, you know, you know the thing. Actually, what that noble declaration says is we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Recognizing that no written document by men grants such rights, but they come from our Heavenly Father, our Creator, and they are recognized by this government that is being formed. Now granted, our nation has not always lived up, lived up to those principles. And in some ways, we have seriously violated them in our history. But our stated commitment to them is what has afforded opportunities for political self-correction throughout our history. So yes, I rejoice that all federal agency and department heads have been instructed to quote, identify all contracts or other agency spending related to any training on critical race theory, white privilege, or any other training or propaganda effort that teaches or suggests either one, that the United States is an inherently racist or evil country, or two, that any race or ethnicity is inherently racist or evil. That's a good reason to rejoice. But there's a second reason that as an American citizen, I rejoice at this move by President Trump. It's because this action calls for the ending of federal contracts that are funded by taxpayer dollars that have been underwriting these trainings with ideas infused by critical race theory. You know, if the enemies are gonna work to overthrow our nation from within, Please don't ask me to pay them while they do so. I'm under no delusions that these orders will right all the damage that CRT and similar ideologies have done to our nation, or that they will even survive the upcoming election in just a few weeks. But nevertheless, I'm very encouraged by these actions of our president. However, as encouraged as I am by this response to CRT from the federal government, I am equally alarmed by the response of many Christian leaders to CRT. But before explaining my alarm, let's take a moment to just review what critical race theory entails and why it is incompatible with biblical Christianity. As Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay have written in their recent book, Cynical Theories, Critical race theory formally arose in the 1970s through the critical study of law as it pertains to issues of race. 
The word critical here means that its intention and methods are specifically geared toward identifying and exposing problems in order to facilitate revolutionary political change. Advocates of CRT readily admit that their agenda is not merely to understand and explain racial issues, but rather their agenda is to transform society based on the problems that they claim exist. Richard Delgado in Gene Stefanczyk's book, Critical Race Theory, an introduction, which by the way, New Testament professor at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, Jarvis Williams, says he wishes every evangelical would read so that we could advance our thinking about race relations. In that book, they write this, the critical race theory movement is a collection of activists and scholars interested in studying and transforming the relationship among race racism, and power. It not only tries to understand our social situation, but to change it. It sets out not only to ascertain how society organizes itself along racial lines and hierarchies, but to transform it for the better. According to the UCLA School of Public Affairs, this agenda of critical race theory is well known and should be widely accepted. They write, CRT recognizes that racism is ingrained in the fabric and system of the American society. The individual racist need not exist to note that institutional racism is pervasive in the dominant culture. This is what Dr. Lindsay was speaking about in the earlier session. This is, they go on to say, the analytical lens that CRT uses in examining existing power structures. And you hear the language automatically again takes us back to Marx and Marxian concepts. I've seen all relationships in terms of power structures, those who have power and those who do not. Power dynamics defines the oppressors and the oppressed peoples of our society. UCLA goes on, CRT identifies that these power structures are based on white privilege and white supremacy, which perpetuates the marginalization of people of color. CRT also rejects the traditions of liberalism and meritocracy. Legal discourse says that the law is neutral or colorblind. colorblind. And that's why Lady Justice has a blindfold on, because we believe that everyone is equal and ought to be treated equally before the law. However, the statement goes on, CRT challenges this legal truth by examining liberalism and meritocracy as a vehicle for self-interest, power, and privilege. To say that you ought to be re rewarded on the basis of merit is merely a way of furthering white privilege and white supremacy. CRT also recognizes that liberalism and meritocracy are often stories heard from those with wealth, power, and privilege. These stories paint a false picture of meritocracy. In other words, this is what they want you to believe, that CRT says is not true. Everyone who works hard can attain wealth, power, and privilege while ignoring the systemic inequalities that institutional racism provides. CRT opposes biblical Christianity in its very presuppositions. Embedded in it, it has presuppositions which it demands that you accept. And let me just summarize these presuppositions in two broad statements. The first presupposition is this. 
that racism is ingrained in the fabric and system of the American society. So you must accept that. You can't question it. You can't ask for evidence of it. You can't discuss it. It is a starting point that is asserted and is to remain accepted and unquestioned. The second presupposition is this, that power structures based on white privilege and white supremacy exist and must be overthrown. So critical race theory assumes, presumes, that people of color are inherently oppressed and marginalized by power structures that are rooted in white privilege and white supremacy. And furthermore, CRT does not merely make that observation, it wants to highlight that observation and make it so that everyone will agree with that observation and then go on with them to be definitionally committed to the transforming of the perceived oppressions that it identifies by its presupposition. So critical race theory says that racism unquestionably, unquestionably exists and is systemic throughout all of American society. This society has been built by and for those who benefit from the oppressive ideology of whiteness. So, as we've already heard, there doesn't have to be a racist in the room for the room to be permeated with racism. Why? Because racism is found in the very structure in which that room or that space exists and how it was built. Racism was built into the very system in which that room finds its existence. With these presuppositions, CRT will not allow the question ever to be asked that goes like this. Was racism involved in that conversation or that event? But rather, always requires that this question be asked. How was racism involved in that conversation or that event? In what ways do we see it manifesting itself? Well, CRT is built on these presuppositions, requires they be embraced, and refusal to embrace it is to reject CRT on its face. You can't use CRT and reject the presuppositions. And I just want to be on record in saying that I categorically reject CRT on its face as being incompatible with biblical Christianity. Well, why is that so? Well, CRT, along with every other Marxist ideology, cannot be reconciled with the Bible with regards to what the Bible teaches about sin and about righteousness and about salvation. First, to view all relationships in terms of power dynamics requires that people be seen in terms of the powerful, that is, the privileged, the inherent oppressors, and the powerless, the marginalized and those who are oppressed. Along with striking out against God-ordained hierarchies all across creation and going against the authority structures that God Himself has established in His creation, and they do this by evaluating every hierarchy, every authority structure in terms of oppressive power structures, this way of viewing the world fails to evaluate people in their primary relationship, which is as creatures who are made in the image of and must relate fundamentally and primarily to the one who created them. 
Secondly, he who defines the problem gets to define the solution. And if the main problem that people of color have is that they are inevitably oppressed by structures that are inherently oppressive, then the only solution is to tear down those structures. And this must be done by political maneuvers. The gospel can't do this. The church can't do this. The Bible's not calling upon God's people to do this. It has to be a political solution, and it must be pursued in the name of justice. Well, this way of thinking, at the very least, clouds the fact that is revealed in the Scripture that every creature's who is made in the image of God, every creature's fundamental problem is that he or she has sinned against this God who has created us. And this is true for people in any and every category, whether oppressed or oppressor, whether whether privileged or marginalized, whether victim or victimizer, whether those who have or those who do not have. Everyone needs the grace of God given to them because everyone has rebelled against Him. And all of us are creatures living in His world. And our fundamental need, therefore, is to be reconciled to God. And that's precisely what God has provided by sending the Lord Jesus Christ into the world. Jesus came in order to reconcile anyone and everyone who will trust in Him to their Creator by His life of complete righteousness before God's law, His death under the curse of that law, not for His own sin, but for the sins of those who would trust Him, His resurrection from the dead, demonstrating that His life and death had secured everything God requires. Jesus has secured reconciliation for creatures made in God's image, and the God who created them. This is the gospel. This is our greatest need. And this is what God has provided. And this is precisely what critical race theory undercuts. This is what makes the gospel good news. God loves sinners. He justifies ungodly people. He reconciles rebels to himself And he does it not through anything that his creatures attain. He does it through the accomplishments and merits of his own son, the Lord Jesus. And Jesus was sent into the world for precisely this purpose. So there's nothing left for sinners like you and me to do. We don't have to try to work our way back to God. We don't have to try to do things to get back into his good graces. Indeed, we cannot do anything. Our only hope is in what Jesus has done. And the only salvation that is found is in His life, death, and resurrection for sinners. And the only way that salvation is received, no matter who you are, is by turning from your sin and entrusting yourself to Christ and believing what God has said to us concerning the satisfaction of Jesus in fulfilling all the law's demands against us. Well, what about those Christians who believe everything I just said about the gospel? But they also say, well, yeah, we believe that. But CRT can be a a useful analytical tool for us. We can use it for helping us think about race and racism. 
Well, the most charitable way that I can respond to that statement is that such people are naive. Dangerously naive. Why? Because the tool that you use matters. What tool you pick up to accomplish a, uh, overcoming a problem matters. Even when a problem is rightly diagnosed, which I do not believe CRT does in the main, it can be exacerbated rather than solved if you try to approach it and address it with the wrong tool. Now, I live just a couple hours down the road in southwest Florida. In southwest Florida, we are infected by these biting insects that are known as noceums. And the reason is you can't see them, but you can feel them. And you only recognize they're there after they have bitten you. And sometimes of the year, they're really bad. And whenever they're really bad and I find myself swarmed by them, and by the time I figure it out, I'm covered and I have all kind of bites on me, I'm pretty upset at them. And I want to smash them. I want to squash them. I want to destroy them. I don't want to just eliminate them. I want to make them suffer. You know, I want to make them die a slow, painful death. And, and so there's lots of tools available to me for that. I could take a hammer and I could go after noceums and I might gain a little pleasure out of it. And I might kill a few of them, but I'd probably break some bones and do some other damage to structures that would not be helpful and wind up being far more damage being done than good being accomplished. The exact same thing is true of critical race theory. This theory comes from a godless materialistic worldview. It cannot be employed as an analytical tool or for any other fashion in ways that are true to the ideologies embedded within it without undermining the very revelation of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. And the same is true of intersectionality, which is a way of identifying people that grew out of CRT studies and in many ways is more insidious and corrosive in its impact on social relationships and society at large. Intersectionality is a, a way of living that is based upon seeing people in terms of different types of discrimination overlapped in their lives so that people become increasingly marginalized or oppressed dependent upon the number of these intersectional um, dismissals that they have from society. It's the idea that a person's true identity is measured by how many victim statuses they can call their own. Like CRT, intersectionality views the world through the lens of power dynamics, with a person's social position best understood in terms of power and privilege or in terms of discrimination and disadvantage. So the more disadvantaged groups that you can identify with, the more oppressed you are. And the number of such groups is growing, and it's virtually infinite. Here's the way the Encyclopedia of Diversity and Social Justice describes intersectionality. It says, Our experiences of the social world are shaped by our ethnicity, race, social class, gender identity, sexual orientation, and numerous other facets of social stratification. Numerous other. They're multiplying every day. Some social locations afford privilege, for example, being white while others are oppressive, for example, being poor. These various aspects of social inequality do not operate independently of each other. They interact to create interrelated systems of oppression and domination. 
The concept of intersectionality refers to how these various aspects of social location intersect to mutually constitute individuals' lived experiences. So, for example, by current measurements, a black man is more pressed than a white man, but a black woman is more pressed than a black man. But a black lesbian woman is more pressed than a black heterosexual woman. A black transgendered lesbian woman is more pressed than a black lesbian woman. And on and on and on it goes. Currently, white heterosexual cisgendered able-bodied Christian males are at the top of the offender list. And those who can claim the most opposite categories are the most oppressed. In intersectionality, the more victim statuses a person has, the greater is his or her insight and authority to speak on issues related to justice, oppression, and related subjects. This standpoint epistemology, of which we will hear more uh, later in this conference, provides such a person with special insight into how the world really works, especially with regard to justice and oppression. And that's why those who are higher on the intersectionality scale in terms of their privilege and oppressive status, status must be quiet and listen to the ones who have multiplied more oppressed statuses in their own identity. Well, the early church had a name for such claims to special knowledge based on experience. They called it Gnosticism and regarded it as a heresy. Well, why is intersectionality incompatible with the gospel? Well, like critical race theory, the great problem with intersectionality is the worldview that forged it and is embedded within it. Intersectionality operates on a sub-Christian worldview that makes no, takes no account for God's sovereignty over His creation or His prerogative to order His creation however He chooses. Intersectionality emphasizes the ways that people differ from one another while ignoring, if not rejecting altogether, what the Bible says about the commonality of the human race. Biblical teaching about this commonality shows us that in three very significant ways, there is a unity that exists among human beings that transcends all other commonalities. The first is that all people, as we've already talked about, are created in God's image. We are all responsible creatures who have come from the same Creator. This is found throughout the Scriptures, especially in the early chapters of Genesis, but also in Paul's speech that he gave there in Athens at the Areopagus before the Athenian philosophers, where he said, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So we have a commonality in our creatureliness. Second, we've all sinned against our Creator. Paul spends the bulk of the first three chapters of his letter to the church at Rome elaborating this point. And he emphatically declares in that section of the letter, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But intersectionality says, ah, but there are many distinctions between people 
And honoring those differences is very necessary if we're going to really help people with their real problems in this world. But of course, you recognize immediately that intersectionality doesn't realize and will not acknowledge the most fundamental problem that people have in this world is their rebellion against their Creator. The third way that intersectionality undermines the Bible's teaching is by downplaying, if not rejecting outright, the oneness that Christians have with each other because of our union with Christ. To be united by faith in Jesus Christ is to be spiritually united to all who are in Christ. It's to belong to the family of God. It is to have God as our Father and other Christians as our brothers and sisters. And that is more important in terms of our identity than skin color, ethnicity, life experiences, or anything else that we could ever conceive. This is precisely the point of Galatians 3, 27 and 28, where the Apostle Paul writes, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Our identity fundamentally is found in our relationship to God. First as creatures, then as rebels, and through His grace that leads us to faith in Jesus Christ as His children. Authority comes from God. And human authority belongs to those in whom God invests it according to their various spheres of responsibility in this world. Insight into how to live well in God's world and church comes from Scripture and not from someone's social location or lived experience. So those who promote the use of critical race theory and intersectionality are standing against what the Word of God teaches about the nature of humanity, the nature of sin, the nature of righteousness, and the nature of grace. These ideologies are incompatible with the authority and sufficiency of God's Word, and therefore they're incompatible with the faith, the Christianity which the Bible reveals. They are not useful analytical tools that Christians can employ as if they are neutral. They have ideas and principles embedded within them that are not only antithetical to the way of Christ, but are also committed to the deconstruction of the Christian faith because they believe that very faith to be part of the oppressive power system that systemically and unjustly oppresses marginalized people. And furthermore, for Christians who take God at His word, these ideologies are superfluous. If we read and understand the Bible, if we're submissive to its authority and confident in its sufficiency, we do not need these ideologies to tell us how to think about the world or how to operate in pursuing justice. Well, as these ideologies have become more and more prominent in our culture over the last many years, they have made their way into evangelical churches and institutions. I and others have documented this repeatedly in articles and talks and interviews over the last several years. You can simply go to founders.org online and search for CRT, intersectionality, social justice, and you'll come up with dozens and dozens of articles and interviews. If you're not familiar with the 
documentary that Mike mentioned earlier, By What Standard, God's World, God's Rules. I encourage you to get a copy and to watch it. We have the DVDs available out on the table in the foyer. You can go online and watch it for free at founders.org. We produced that documentary to highlight the ways that these ideologies are infiltrating evangelical entities. Well, despite the overwhelming evidence that destructive Marxian postmodern ideas are being promoted within our evangelical ranks, key evangelical leaders have been hesitant and even unwilling to do anything to stop them. In some cases, leaders have been complicit in promoting them. A few pastors and leaders have tried to sound the alarm. Those warnings, however, have not only been largely unheeded, but they have also resulted in those sounding them being dismissed, ridiculed, castigated by prominent evangelical leaders, institutions, and organizations. On June 14th, 2018, I had the privilege of joining with 13 other men who met in Dallas to discuss our common concerns about the impact these ideologies were making in the evangelical world. As a result of that meeting, we drew up and published the, the Statement on Social Justice and the Gospel. We did so in hopes that we might help faithful Christians understand what is going on in society, and also we might invite Christian leaders who disagreed with us to engage in dialogue. Well, the first one of those hopes has been realized. Within a matter of weeks, there were multiple thousands of people that signed that document. And the last time I checked, it was about 14,000 or so. I'm not real sure what it is now. But with regard to the second goal, to invite Christian brothers, leaders, pastors who disagree with us to sit down and talk about our disagreements, that goal has not been met. And in some cases, just the opposite has happened. Dr. Philip Bethencourt, who was at the time the Vice President of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Council or Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention, spoke to Josh Bice and me by phone shortly before the statement was released. And he called us and tried to talk us out of releasing it. He suggested that if we did so, that it would wind up being an embarrassment to us. Because, he said, this statement will never gain traction. No prominent person is backing it except for John MacArthur, and nobody listens to John MacArthur anymore. He said that it would result in people dismissing us and our ministries. After this statement was released, Dr. Tim Keller criticized it by saying, you know, it's not so much what the words say, it's what this statement does. Using one of the very tools out of these ideologies to make that statement. Here's what he said. It's not so much what the statement says, but what it does. It's trying to marginalize people talking about race and justice. It's trying to say, you're really not biblical. And it's not fair in that sense. If somebody tried to go down the statement with me, asking, will you agree with this? Will you agree with this? I would say, you're looking at the level of what it says and not the level of what it's doing. I do think what it's trying to do is trying to say, quote, don't make this emphasis, don't worry about the poor, don't worry about the injustice. That's really what it's saying. Even if I could agree with most of it, it's what it's doing that I don't like. Well, along with being accused of not caring about the poor, 
Those of us who issued that statement were also accused of being neo-Confederates, misogynists, racists, of not caring about injustices in the world. We were described as misunderstanding the gospel, as lacking an evangelical conscience, as feeling threatened by women and minority voices in the church, as shutting down helpful conversations about race and trying to scare Christians away from working for real justice in the world. Of course, none of those things was true. Our motivation was clearly stated. We wanted to warn against what we believed to be dangerous ideologies that were being embraced by Christian leaders and institutions and churches. Ideologies that by their very nature would wind up crippling the very people that they purport to help by undermining true biblical justice and doing so in the name of social justice. Dr. Al Mohler, the president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, explained to students not long after the statement was released that he could not sign it because he disagreed with the language it uses. Last year, at the Shepherds Conference in Los Angeles, when asked pointedly about the statement, he said, quote, I was not particularly appreciative of being handed a statement. And went on to state that he had no opportunity to, quote, offer any particular consultation or suggestion. Faculty members at Southern Seminary have indicated that they were strongly discouraged by the administration from signing that statement. Thabiti Anyabwele, who's been a prominent speaker at T4G conferences, is the pastor of Anacostia River Church in Washington, D.C., and a council member of the Gospel Coalition, wrote two articles last year arguing that my warnings about these ideologies infiltrating evangelicalism were simply wrong. They weren't true. He said, there is no evangelical social justice movement. More recently, he called critical race theory a mere boogeyman that I and others have invoked to divide and scare God's people. So we use the language to intimidate, to scare people from looking at key biblical issues regarding justice. Mike Cosper, who is the director of podcasting for the magazine Christianity Today, has dismissed our alarms by suggesting that no one really knows what CRT is, implying that we are speaking out of ignorance and therefore we should be ignored. It's hard for me to believe that any Christian, much less any Christian pastor or leader, could be so cavalier and unmoved in the face of the attacks being waged on our churches and institutions by these ideologies. But it's even more disconcerting to see some defend and promote these ideologies from the very institutions and agencies and organizations that are funded by the churches and the people who repudiate critical race theory and intersectionality. Defending it, being complicit with it, allowing it, while doing so with money from faithful Christians. This is exactly what happened at the 2019 Southern Baptist Convention annual meeting in Birmingham, Alabama. That meeting was the occasion of the infamous Resolution 9 on critical race theory and intersectionality. That resolution was submitted to the convention by the resolutions committee. That committee was comprised of several members, including four from Southern Baptist seminaries. 
Walter Strickland, who's a vice president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Keith Whitfield, who's also a vice president at that same school. Alicia Wong, who's the director of women's studies at Gateway Seminary. And the chairman of the committee, Curtis Woods, who at the time was on faculty at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville. Well, despite the efforts of several men, including those of Tom Buck and myself, who spoke against it and tried to amend it from the floor, the convention passed that resolution, adopting it, and went on record accepting critical race theory and intersectionality as useful analytical tools that can be properly employed by faithful Christians. That was a colossal mistake. It's important to note that when that vote was taken, there were six seminary presidents from Southern Baptist seminaries in the room, and their silence was deafening. So here's where we find ourselves today. Critical race theory and intersectionality have been thoroughly infused in many of our academic, legal, political institutions in this nation. These ideologies are well on their way trying to gain ascendancy in certain evangelical realms. We have a president of this nation whose administration has been given enough wisdom to try to root it out of our federal government. And we have evangelical leaders who are unwilling to be as decisive in doing the same for our churches and institutions. Indeed, as has been well documented, some of our leaders are actively promoting these ideologies in the name of promoting, quote, social justice, in the name of becoming a woke church, claiming that by doing so, they're advocating for a better version of Christianity. Brothers and sisters, we must be crystal clear in what we're facing. Those churches, institutions, and leaders who are advocating for CRT and intersectionality as useful analytical tools are not proposing a different kind of Christianity. They are advocating for a different religion altogether. Those of us who love Christ and are willing to bow, unwilling to bow to any other than Christ must resist them at every point and call them to repentance. We need not make any judgment upon their motivations or their understanding but we must hold them accountable to what the Word of God says. If they refuse to repent, we must certainly not go on financially supporting their efforts, whether they are doing so wittingly or unwittingly. We must not allow them to go on to allow these ideologies to erode the very foundations of the faith that you and I hold dear because of what God's revealed to us in His Son. We are in a spiritual war, and our Lord and Savior calls us to stand firm. If we are for Him, we must be clear in standing against these ideologies. If anyone advocates for them, we must recognize that in their doing so, they are opposing the very gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no neutral ground. May God help us.